Welcome to another edition of After Darkness Light, where we're continuing the journey from darkness to light by exploring the Christian faith through the brilliant light of the scriptures, the pre-Nicene Christian church, and the 16th century Protestant Reformation. I'm your host, Todd Ketterhagen, and I'm podcasting from McGuanago, Wisconsin, U.S. of A. Thank you for joining me today. Now, first things first, this is a theological podcast. And while the topics I explore on this podcast are among some of the most important subjects ever talked about, such as salvation, forgiveness of sins, resurrection from the dead, how to read the very words of God in the Holy Scriptures, I don't expect you to believe anything I say. I'm not an expert, I'm not a pastor, and I haven't been to seminary. I'm not fluent in the biblical languages, and I could be wrong about everything I say or think about all of these issues. So you should be testing everything I say with the Holy Scriptures. But here's my goal. While talking out loud about these age-old important topics as they relate to Christianity, my intention is to not express my ideas or any new ideas or any never-before-heard-of theological ideas or theories, but rather to attempt to faithfully, with as little creativity and novelty as possible, communicate the Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints 2,000 years ago in the scriptures and passed on through the church and ultimately rediscovered during the 16th century Reformation. All right, today's topic, I'll begin with a question. Why do you think it is that in America, you'd be hard-pressed to find a church or theological tradition that does not affirm or practice the Great Commission of Jesus found in the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel? And at the same time, you would be equally hard-pressed to find a church or theological tradition that affirms or practices Jesus' other command to the same disciples in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. Why is Matthew so universally listened to and John so widely ignored? This is our topic today. All right, let's start with the two texts in question. Here's the command of Jesus to his 11 disciples in the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Many of you will be very familiar with it. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so that was Matthew 28. Now on to John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now here are some, you know, just plain observations from these two texts. And um, I'm sure it's easy to see. Both pericopes occur at the same time, post-resurrection and pre-ascension. Both pericopes have the same person speaking and commanding. Obviously, that's Jesus. Both pericopes have the same person who is sending. Once again, that's Jesus. And both pericopes have, you guessed it, the same audience that's being commanded. So these are virtually identical in speaker, context, time, and command and audience. Virtually identical. So considering the time period's the same, the speaker's the same, the audience is the same, and both contain specific, clear, unambiguous commissions from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, why... Is the commission found in the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew so universally believed, beloved, affirmed, and practiced? While the commission in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John is so widely not believed, not affirmed, and not practiced. Could it be that there is no textual argument for treating these two pericopes so differently. And instead, the only reasons for believing Matthew and not believing John are arguments and presuppositions that exist outside of these texts. The reason that objections to the text of John 20 are exclusively outside of the text of John 20 is probably because the text is so clear, so simple, so straightforward, And it's just hard to argue with these words. It's hard to argue that these words don't mean what the words say based on the words themselves. So in order to argue the words don't mean what they plainly say, one must get away from the words and the text of John 20 and make the argument some other way, from some other place. One such argument I've heard was that in the New Testament books, such as Acts, there's a record of the apostles doing the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, and there is not a scriptural record of the apostles forgiving sins as John 20 so clearly instructs them to do. So the argument reasons that since we don't see a scriptural record of the apostles forgiving or retaining sins in the New Testament record, that John 20 can't mean what it says, and it can't mean that Jesus actually gave them the authority to forgive sins and commissioned them to forgive or retain sins. Now, this argument sounds compelling at first blush, but quickly reveals itself to be an argument from silence at best, and at worst, a false syllogism. Allow me to explain. An argument from silence attempts to prove its point by marshalling as evidence examples that don't exist. The specific argument goes like this. 
Because we see no record of the apostles forgiving sins as John 20 authorizes, that means that John 20 must not mean what it plainly says, an authorization and commission to forgive or retain sins. The argument is based on what is not in the text. It argues that because scripture is silent on the implementation of this commission in John 20, that must prove that the words of Jesus in John 20 don't mean what Jesus plainly said. How about this example? How strong do you think the argument would be that would argue against the practice of, let's say, the Lord's Supper, simply because the Apostle Paul didn't write about it in his letters to the churches at Ephesus, Rome, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Galatia? And while I could be mistaken, I think the only mention of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament after Jesus instituted it was in the early Jerusalem church and the church in Corinth. While I certainly could have missed some text on the Lord's Supper outside of those two uh, that I mentioned, the point is this. The Cetes Doctrine, or the seat of doctrine, uh, or the, the text that makes us believe in the Lord's Supper, doesn't come from where it isn't mentioned, but rather comes from the words of Jesus when he instituted it. Jesus' command dictates the doctrinal practice of the Lord's Supper, not its textual absence from a handful of letters in the New Testament that don't talk about the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, logic tells us that the argument that obedience to command is necessary to prove the command's validity and meaning is a false syllogism. For example, are the Ten Commandments invalid and not really commanded by God just because no one's ever followed them except for Jesus? Of course not. Would the Great Commission be any less valid or less authorized or less commanded if nobody in the New Testament had actually obeyed it? Of course not. In fact, in some ways, that almost happened when you consider it took persecution to get the apostles out of Jerusalem. Regardless, there are more dependable ways to exegete what a text of Scripture means other than arguments from silence and false syllogisms. For example, if the text is not a figure of speech, a colloquialism, or a metaphor, then the plain, simple, straightforward meaning of the words using the rules of grammar should be the most accurate understanding of the text. And when we consider the commissions by Jesus to the disciples in Matthew 28 and John 20 are not metaphorical, they're not complex, they're not shrouded in mystery or, or words that we don't know the meaning to. On the contrary, these words and sentences are simple, plain, and easy to understand. This hermeneutical rule of grammar, context, and the simple, plain reading of the text trumping any conflict with our reason, is a hallmark of Lutheran Reformation theology. Why do you think so many theological traditions are averse to the plain and simple understanding of the words in John 20? Why do so many theological traditions wholeheartedly embrace Matthew while ignoring John? And in regard to the argument that the apostles and the apostolic record of the New Testament doesn't show them performing with the authority and the commission that Jesus gave them to forgive sins, I would ask the question, are we sure about that? Let's start out with the birth of the church in the beginning of Acts. 
The Apostle Peter was one of those guys present in John 20, remember, who was given the Holy Spirit and was sent by Jesus with the authority to forgive sins. Now, this is Peter's first public preaching appearance, and it's on the day of Pentecost when the church was born. Was there on that day, in that context, any forgiveness of sins being administered? You bet your bippy there was. Let me read from Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was sticking to the command of Jesus in John 20, and many sins were forgiven that first day of the church. Now jumping ahead to Acts 5, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior in order to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Peter, in his speech in Acts 10 about the Gentiles, said all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 22, Ananias was administering the forgiveness of sin with Saul when he said, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Furthermore, Paul speaking in Acts 13 said, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Furthermore, in Acts 26, Paul recounts Jesus' words to him on the road to Damascus when he says, I'm, Jesus is saying to him, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those sanctified by faith in me. So I brought up these descriptive, historical, scriptural examples in the book of Acts to show that the church and the apostles had dispensing forgiveness of sins as a primary message and application from day one of the church and throughout the acts of the apostles. Now, of course, there are many different Christian traditions that practice various forms of the commission of John 20. Some practice public confession and absolution. Some practice private one-on-one -on -one confession and absolution. Some practice both. Some practice none. Some practice proclamation of the free forgiveness of sins on account of Christ. And some practice direct absolution. And this conversation is not which practice is best or if a church is good or bad, if it practices one of these methods or the other. But it seems to me the issue is about mission and obedience to a specific, unambiguous command of Christ to his church. So as I leave you today, here are some questions to ponder. Is your church more about forgiving people's sins or making better behaved Christians? Is your church more about forgiving people's sins or teaching people how to have a more rewarding life? Is your church more about forgiving people's sins or teaching people how to have better relationships? Is your church more about forgiving people's sins or teaching about other topics? Jesus himself gave the disciples this authority 
and sent them out to do this. And yet this practice, or another way to say it, emphasis of forgiveness of sins, is so widely not believed or practiced in much of the Christianity that, that I've been a part of in my life. In fact, I recall being in a Bible study where one of the Christian guys mocked the practice of a pastor forgiving sins in a church service. So given the near identical textual basis for Matthew 28, in terms of speaker, audience, context, time, all that stuff, why do you think that Matthew is so widely embraced in the 28th chapter of his gospel and John so widely disregarded in the 20th chapter of his? If the problem or difference isn't with the text, then what do you think it is? Of course, if it isn't an issue with the text, the reason must be outside of the text. Perhaps a presupposition that Jesus doesn't have the authority to authorize his church to forgive sins. Perhaps a philosophical idea that forgiveness cannot be dispensed by people in the church because Christianity is an individual sport where we have personal responsibility to progress in our spirituality and feed ourselves, grow ourselves, and self-actualize ourselves in an intensely private, internal, subjective, personal relationship. And it would be not only antithetical, but it would be flat-out offensive to let another person participate or contribute in that dispensing of God's gift of forgiveness. Well, whatever it is, there seems to be a widespread disparity between the belief and practice of Matthew in his 28th chapter and John in his 20th. Why do you think that is?